Amen. Lord, that's our heart tonight, is that we would call upon your name, because without you we can do nothing. Without you we have no hope. Without you we have no life. Without you, Lord, we would be just wandering aimlessly. And Father, I just thank you and praise you for your sending your Son. I thank you for your love and your grace. I pray tonight that you would be our teacher. The Lord, it would be your words and not the words of men. I pray that each of our hearts would just be soft and receptive to what you want to minister to us. So, Father, we love you and we praise you. We gather for you and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Good to see you. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll be happy to loan you one. And again, as I say all the time, if, if you need a Bible, please take that home as our gift. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by Word of God. So we need to spend time in God's Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 15. Continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Uh, If you're planning on being here on Sunday, I want to encourage you to read Acts 26. We'll be taking a look at that this Sunday morning, Lord willing. Before we start, I did want to just say something about uh, the movie The Passion. I know we've all heard about it, and I went, some of the pastors went this morning, we went to see it. Now, I know we're going again on Friday as a church. I think there's 80 or 90 of us going on Friday night, but... I've also heard, and I just want, you know, you guys know me, I'm just real direct, right? But I've heard people murmuring about, you know, some Christians talking about the movie, some people saying you shouldn't see it because of it. Let me just tell you something. Every Christian ought to see this movie. Every single one. I want to encourage you to go. I want to encourage you to invite people that maybe wouldn't go to, uh, go to church with you. Buy them a movie ticket and take them to the movie. And I'll tell you, I have to confess to you openly that it exhausted me. By the time the movie was over, I was wore out. You know, it's interesting, uh, the Jesus movie that uh, Campus Crusade made, they would show it sometimes in places where people had never seen a movie before and never, seen, and never had a, seen electricity. And they'd set up out in the middle of a field and bring, you know, natives in and they'd start showing the movie and it began at Jesus' birth and by the time they got to Jesus being attacked and then, you know, scourged and crucified... They said what started to happen was is when the people started to beat Jesus, the, the natives would attack the screen to protect Jesus. You know, they didn't understand. They really thought, you know, they, they'd see it and they'd be like, hey, that ain't right. You know, they'd get up and attack the screen. And, and I have to confess to you, when the movie's very intense, but my heart wasn't to attack the screen. My heart was I was just blown away throughout the movie how much Jesus loves me. That's what I just kept thinking, man, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy of you doing this for me. And I was just, I was weeping through the whole movie. It was, and we know when the movie ended, usually when movies end, everybody jumps up and leaves. Everybody, nobody moved. And after the movie was over, people were standing around talking about it. So I just want to encourage you that, you know, I'll, I'll just say that there's a few things in there that maybe aren't perfect. Um, you know, we know that Mel Gibson's got a Catholic background and he, he kind of, gives Mary a little too much attention, but you know what, That's okay. it's not, the reality is, you're going to see just the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection, and it will absolutely impact your life. So I want to encourage you, invite people, um, if you have little kids, you might want to see it first before you take them, I'm going to take my 10, 11, 12, and 15 year old, they can see it, I, don't have, I'm, I know they're going to be fine. I mean, they can watch the Lord of the Rings, right? And the intense violence and that, they need to see what Jesus did for them, amen? So I want to encourage, I'd be praying. I, I've already heard just great reports on the radio and different things about, you know, people just getting saved. And praise God. And you know what? I love it when I turn on the news and they're talking about Jesus, amen? And I love it when I open up the, the San Jose Mercury and the front of the San Jose Mercury is a picture of Jesus. I'm like, oh, that's good. I like that. So this is a good thing. And so when you hear people, maybe, maybe you haven't run into it. Maybe because I'm a pastor, everybody emails me and tells me why you shouldn't see it. I'm like, you know what, bro, lighten up. God's going to use this. And let's be excited about it, amen? And, and we can tear it down or we can be excited about it. And so I'm excited about it. I'm blessed. I'm looking forward to going with you guys on Friday night. And again, um, I think we may be, are, we're out of tickets, Bill. We're out of tickets. But I think you might be able to go to the box office and buy one. We're on Friday night at 730, right? It may not be sold out, so if you want to join us, you can probably go down and get a ticket tomorrow or something, or Friday morning, and come, I think, again, we'll have quite a few folks there. Well, Numbers 15, let's take a look at, at God's Word. And I titled the message tonight, Submitting to the Authority of God's Word. You know, one of the things that we struggle with as men and women, as human beings, we struggle, and, and all over the world today, we struggle with submitting to authority. 
We don't want to submit to anybody. Not in our flesh we don't. Now in the Spirit, hopefully we do. We want to submit to God completely. But, you know, especially places like Santa Cruz. You drive around and you see bumper stickers that say, Question Authority. And everybody, you know, every, nobody wants to submit to anybody. You know, I want to be in charge, and I, nobody tells me what to do, and I, you know, I've got it going on. And you know, the reality is that's exactly what happened with the children of Israel. They started to question God's authority, and they got away from God's word, and they got away from God's promises, and as soon as they did, we saw what happened last week. And so we see that, that the children of Israel made a mistake by allowing themselves to think they knew better than God. You know, God must not be thinking straight right now. And you know, sometimes, hey, let's confess, we've all done that at some point in our life where, you know, we know what the Bible says, but we think we know better. Well, that, you know, that applies to somebody else, but not to me. I'm special, right? Does, does, does God know every detail of what's going on in your life? Does He know what's best for you? Is He sovereign? Is He in control? Yes, He is. And the children of Israel, He had proved it to them over and over and over again. He had delivered them out of bondage. In, his, in Egypt. He heard their cries. He came in and he delivered them. He brought Moses to them. And then he showed them great and awesome works. The plagues that he brought upon them, revealing God's power. The Passover that delivered them out of, out of bondage. Where they took the blood of the firstborn spotless lamb, a picture of Christ. And they put it in the four points, a picture of the cross. The, the same spots where Jesus bled and the angel of death passed over. And they were delivered out of bondage. They saw him part the Red Sea. The pillar of fire protected them from the, the Romans after they, or the Egyptians, excuse me, after they came to attack him. He gave them the law, the, the clear law, the word of God. Moses came down from the mountain, he was glowing. I mean, they had so many evidences of God's mighty hand. As they were traveling, he gave them traveling instructions, right? He encamped them in the cross. His spirit was upon them. The, 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 God's glory was there. We saw him raining food down from the sky, so all they had to do was get up in the morning, go out of their tent, and pick food up off of the ground. They had seen that God truly is great. They had seen his power. They had seen his awe. They should have been in wonder of him. And instead, what happened was they let it grow common after a certain amount of time. When Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days, they started to say, Oh, what did we come out here for? And we saw that real quickly, when you get your eyes off of God, you can start to murmur and complain. And that's exactly what the children of Israel began to do. If you remember a few weeks ago, they started complaining about the food. And then after complaining about the food, they, well, they complained about having to travel. And then they, murmured, they just murmured and murmured and murmured and complained. And let me just, can I encourage you with something as Christians? We should never complain about anything. Amen? Does complaining endear you to people, do you think? Is that a good way to, to, to share your testimony with somebody? You get on the phone and just start blasting the person on the phone about why aren't they taking care of you, right? Is that a servant's heart? But you see, three million whiners, children of Israel, they're all sitting in their tent and whining about their food and whining that they had to travel. Instead of saying, God has delivered us out of bondage and we're headed to the land of promise, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for dropping manna out of the sky. Thank you for parting the Red Sea. Thank you for encamping us in the cross. Thank you that your glory dwells in our midst. Instead, they murmured about the physical details of life. And that's what we can get caught up in. Because if they had had their eyes on the pillar, if they had had their eyes on God's glory, they wouldn't be murmuring about fish and leeks and onions. And we noticed they had a selective memory. We've talked about this. They, they thought about Egypt in fond terms. That just cracks me up. You know, I just remember back in Egypt, between the beatings, we used to get garlic once in a while, right? And, I just, you know, and they have this selective memory where they only remember the good stuff and they don't remember the bondage that they were in. And sometimes I'll hear, and I'll tell you, I don't get it. I'll just be honest with you. I'll hear Christians or people saying that they're Christians say, yeah, you know, I remember when I, before I got saved, man. It was, I'm like, dude, I don't even want to think about before I was saved. Amen? I'm thanking the Lord that I'm born again. I can't imagine living life without Him. And yet people all oh, had to give up this. You know what? Yeah, you gave up hellfire. What a drag, right? I mean, praise the Lord that we've been born again and we're ha-ha heaven bound, as DC Talk would say, and we got so much to rejoice about. And as Christians, we shouldn't walk around like, you know, looking like we've been sucking on a lemon, you know? As Christians, we ought to have joy. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace. 
But you know what? We had three million whiners wandering through the wilderness. And poor Moses, what a church the pastor, I've said this before. Can you imagine a church of three million whiners and an assistant pastor that makes a golden calf when you're out of town? You know, thanks a lot, right? But Moses is faithful to God. And then we saw finally that they get to the land of promise and they don't trust God's word. Remember what God, what had God told them? He told them to go and what? Take the land. Remember that? Didn't he promise them that he had already given them the land? And when they got there, what did they do instead? They sent spies in. And, you know, it says in Deuteronomy that they clamored and said, we need to send spies, we need to send spies. And so the Lord finally said, okay, fine, send spies in. It's no different than when they cried out for a king and God gave them Saul. And so they're crying out and they sent the spies up and 12 spies came back and 10 of them, what did 10 of them say? There's what in the land? There's giants in the land. There's walled cities in the land. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. They're going to squash us like bugs if we go up there. But then two came back, Joshua and Caleb, and what did they say? God's given us the land. Let's go up and take it. Amen? And you know what? It's not by chance that it was five to one, those who murmured compared to those who had faith. Because the faithless will always outnumber the faithful. And you know, that's why we don't take votes at church. At least not in this church. We'll never vote on anything, okay? Show me voting in the Bible and how did it work out. They cast lots for, for Matthias, right? Right? And what happened to him? We never saw him again, right? That's the only voting we see. It didn't work out too well. So we don't vote because God's in charge, amen? And, we're not, and we can all get together. And, we, and if we voted, if we were the children of Israel, we, they would have never gone into land. Well, we're, we're 10 to 2. We're not doing it, Right? And instead, we see that God had an ultimate plan. And because of their faithlessness, because they didn't trust in God's word, because they didn't trust in his authority, what did they do? Instead, they cried out and said, we can't go, they'll kill us. And Joshua and Caleb continued to say, look, God is faithful. We should go on up and possess the land. So instead, what happened? God brought judgment against the children of Israel because of their faithlessness. Because they didn't trust God's word. They didn't believe what he said. So what did he say? You're never going to go into the land of promise. This 11-day journey from bondage into the land of promise is now going to be a 40-year death march. And all of the generation that wouldn't go in, age 20 and older, you're all going to die in the wilderness. You're going to miss out on the promise because you didn't trust my word. You know, that's an epidemic in the church today. We miss out on God's promise because we don't trust in his word. We miss out on what God wants to do in our lives. I have Christians tell me, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, 25 years. What are you doing for the kingdom? I go to church. What else are you doing? God didn't save you to be a pew potato. Amen? The Dead Sea is dead because it has an inlet and no outlet, and God saved you to use you. It's not the gifted few. It's the, the faithful many. We're all called. You're here. You're called. You're born again. God wants to use you. And so, sadly, because of their faithlessness, they were going to miss out on entering into the land of promise. And so... Finally, and this is kind of how we respond, how did they respond when God, the word came to them, they couldn't go into the land, and then it had been ripped from them? Then they wanted to go into the land. You remember that? God told them, go, 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 I've given it to you, go, I've given it to you, my spirit's leading you, go, it's already taken care of, no, we're not going. Then God says, okay, you can't go now, oh, we're going. It's exactly what they did, remember? And they went up and they tried to attack the enemies, and what happened to them? They lost the battle because Moses didn't go before them. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't in front of them. And God's Spirit, more importantly than all of it, was not with them. They didn't trust God when God said to go. When He said, no, you can't, now they wanted to go because they wanted it to be their idea. They didn't want to submit to God. They wanted to do things their own way. And so sadly, that's what we see often with us as believers. We get too focused on our will and our plans and our thoughts. And so now we're going to see God is reestablishing His authority in chapter 15. He's now going to be speaking to the generation that's going to get to go into the land of promise, those 20 years of age and younger. And He's giving them instructions for when they go into the land some 40 years later. Now, this younger generation is going to be walking around and watching everybody die one at a time. They're going to see the consequences of disobeying God all around them. Let me ask you a question. Do we see the consequences of disobeying God all around us today? Big time. You look at the world we're in. Are we living in Sodom and Gomorrah or what? I mean, the homosexual thing, the stuff that's just going on in the world today, the only people that get attacked anymore are the people that stand up for truth. 
You know, my pastor in San Jose used to say, we used to be an immoral society, which means that there was a set of morals and everybody ignored them. Now we're an amoral society. There aren't any morals anymore, and the only people that catch heat are the people that have morals. Right? If you have morals, you're a bigot. You're, you're narrow-minded. You're arrogant. You're this. And it just breaks my heart. Now, let's, I'm going to make this clear. We're to love the sinner to hate the sin. Amen? And we need to stand up and say, you know what? And I, I'm just going to say it straight out to you guys. Homosexuality is sin. Amen? Shouldn't we love those people, though? If they come to our church next week, I'm going to say, I'm glad you're here. God bless you. Amen? But I'm not performing any weddings. Amen? Because God made Adam and Eve, right? One man, one woman. And that's God's heart. And we need to stand up for God's truth. And that comes across narrow in the world we live in today. But we need to love those people. And sadly, what happens is that we can so easily get our eyes off of God and we don't want to submit to God's authority and God does, God's not in charge anymore and we do things based on what we think is right. And so now we're going to see them as they start to wander into, in the wilderness. God's going to give them instruction to get them back to making Him the authority again. You got, you've taken your eyes off of me. Let me get you back to what you should have been doing all along. So we're going to see Him reestablish the sacrificial system when they head into the land of promise. Along with reestablishing the sacrificial system, he's also going to deal with the judgment against rebellion. And then lastly, he's going to tell them to keep the law ever before their eyes. Not to lose sight of it. Not to lose sight of the truth. Hey guys, can I encourage you with something? If you don't spend time in this book, you're going to struggle in your walk with God. Amen? Faith comes by hearing and hearing from, from the Word of God, right? By the Word of God. It's been said that sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. And it's so key that we spend time in God's Word. And He wants to reestablish that and get their eyes back where they need to be. So let's begin in verse 1. And we're going to look at first that He reestablishes the sacrifices. You know the scary part? How long, how long did he go ahead and He established the sacrificial system that we saw in Leviticus? It's been about a year. And in one year, they stopped making sacrifice before God. They stopped all the feasts. They didn't have Passover. They weren't sacrificing. They were carrying the tabernacle around, and they weren't making sacrifice. They're putting it up, tearing it down, putting it up, driving around, and not making any sacrifices. Because again, they've taken their eyes off of God and put their eyes on themselves. Let's begin in verse 1, taking a look at reestablishing of the sacrifices, submitting to the authority of God's Word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land... You are to inhabit, which I am giving to you. Now the first thing he does is he's speaking to this generation and he's telling them, guys, when you come into the land that you are inhabit, which I am giving you, and I love this, when, not if you come into the land, when you come into the land. Do you know that you can trust God's promises? Amen? God said that if you believe in your heart, says in Romans, and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be what? Saved to the glory of the Father. You have the promise of heaven. The Bible says that no one can ever snatch you out of his hand. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Praise God. Amen? Can you trust that promise? Yes. And so we need to remember that and keep our eyes focused there. And he's saying, guys, when you inhabit the land. Now, I know you're not going to understand. For the next 40 years, you're going to see people dropping all around you. They're going to die because of the consequences of their sin. But I want you to know that I'm faithful to my promises. And I'm going to bring you guys into the land. You know, contrary to what... Many modern-day psychologists might say, we are responsible for our actions. And why are they going to die in the wilderness? Because they disobeyed God. Because they didn't trust His Word, and they didn't want to submit to His authority. They had their own way. By the way, the world today wants to tell you that you're not, you don't have a sin problem, you've got a disease, right? You're struggling with a disease, you know, you're not an adulterer, you're a, a sexual addict. No, you're an adulterer and a fornicator, right? Well, I, I, yeah, I'm not a drunkard, I just got, I drink, I'm an alcoholic, and I got it from my grandfather. Quit blaming your sin on somebody else, amen? And we want to point to disease and point to disease and take the blame away. It's not my fault. I'm, it's just my, you know, it's my Irish temper, right? My Scottish, I'm, I'm tight because I'm Scottish, I'm this, oh, stop it. The reality is that we are it's not a disease, it's a choice that we make to sin. Nobody stick, makes you sin. Devil can't make you do anything. 
contrary to what Flip Wilson might have said, right? The devil can't make you do anything. You choose to sin. And these guys had chosen to rebel against God, and now they're reaping the consequences. But in the midst of that, you see God still looking at the next generation saying, i got a promise for you guys, and I'm going to bless you. But here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to make the mistake they made. I don't want you to get your eyes off of me. So I want you to reestablish the sacrificial system. Look at verse 3. It says, Make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice, to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering, or in your appointed feast to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. So let me talk to you again. Those of you who are here in Leviticus, I'm not going to go into great detail, but I want to talk about in Leviticus chapter 1 through 7, he establishes all the different sacrifices. And the sacrifices were made as a constant reminder to the people of their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. There were five different sacrifices that were made. Three of them were called sweet aroma sacrifices. Those sacrifices, the burnt offering, and and those sacrifices that were made were made as a sweet aroma and a free will offering that were just given out of the depths of your hearts. Just to say, Lord, I love you. There's no occasion for me to give this. I'm just giving it to you because I love you. And what I think about when I think about those sweet aroma sacrifices, I think about worship. It's like when you're driving around in your car and you've got Christian music on and you just start praising the Lord. And there's, you know, nobody's gathered for work. You're just, it's just from your heart. Lord, I just, I just love you. And I just want to sing to you because I just love you so much. And that's what those offerings were. It was, it was a free will offering. It wasn't a set standard time. It wasn't because of their sin. It was just out of love for God. And he said there, the first one is called a burnt offering. And again, if you want to get the tapes from Leviticus 1-7, through 7, you can hear about them in detail. By the way, all the offerings point to whom? Jesus, every single one. The burnt offering, they came and they sacrificed the entire animal. Every bit of it. It was a sign of total dedication to God. They killed it completely. And you know, it's heavy because the first thing they had to do is they had to take the animal, whether it was of the herd or the flock, whether it was a bull or a sheep, and they had to lay their hand on the animal's head. Those of you here, what is that a representation of? Identifying yourself. This is me. They would put their hand on the head of the animal and say, this represents me. Imagine with a lamb, they would bring it into their house and and have it for several days to make sure that the lamb was without flaw, that it wasn't sick. You know, can you imagine a little lamb running through your house for four or five days, and your kids are probably naming it and, you know, riding it around the kitchen or whatever, you know? And now you've got to take it down and lay your hand on the head of this animal and then kill it because of what you've done. Imagine holding that little, you know, innocent from the world's, you know, innocent animal, and its big eyes looking up at you, thinking you're going to give him a, another treat or something, right? And you slit its throat because of your sin. But who's that a picture of? The lamb did nothing wrong. We did everything wrong, so the lamb must die. Who's the lamb of God? It's Jesus Christ. And this burnt offering was a reminder, a constant reminder of the cost of sin. Because when you went in to the tabernacle and you walked in, you know what you saw everywhere? blood. First thing you ran into as you came into the, the, the first door was you saw that huge altar for burnt offerings. And when they would give a burnt offering, they would slice the animal and blood was poured out everywhere. And before they could enter into that holy place, the blood must be shed. And it just showed us the constant reminder of the fact that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. There's no other way we can get to heaven. Blood had to be shed. And that's why Jesus came to die in our place. And again, he said, I want you to remember that salvation is a free gift, but it's not cheap. It costs something. And I want you to remember the sacrifice that was made. And I want you to keep your eyes on me and to never start trusting in your own good works or in your own abilities. It says also that they were to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering. Again, it was given from their heart. Now this is the interesting part about it. It says, to make a sweet aroma to the Lord. So when they would sacrifice an animal, it was a bloody mess, but it was also a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now I talked about the, the, the altar of burnt offering was huge. Matter of fact, studies have shown that it was the exact size for a man who was like 5'10 to lay down in and stretch out his arms and he would fit right on the altar of burnt offering. The altar of burnt offering is a picture of what? 
It's the cross. And what's interesting, though, can you imagine an entire bull, for the most part, being barbecued on that altar? That would smell pretty good, I think. Amen? That'd be some barbecuing going on, right? Now, it would smell good from our physical perspective, but that's not what God's talking about. It's a sweet-smelling aroma to Him because even though it's a bloody mess, what it points to is restoration of sinful man back to holy God. And so, it's a blessing in God's eyes to see the work of the cross and the work of the sacrifice. It says there, from the herd or the flock, so it could either be of, of the herd, which would be a bull or an ox. A bull or an ox is what kind? A beast of what? A beast of burden. It was an animal that would carry heavy loads. And the Bible says of Jesus that His yoke is easy and His burden is what? Is light. He takes all your burdens upon Him. That's why it's a bull or an ox. We also see that it can be of the flock. A sheep. Jesus is the Lamb of God. It can be a goat. Remember we talked about the term scapegoat. Remember what they would do? They would sacrifice one goat. They would take the other goat and confess the sins of Israel over it and then send it out into the desert to carry the sins away. It's called a scapegoat. And so that animal took your sins and carried it away to be remembered no more. And isn't that what Jesus did for us on the cross? He took all of our sins and separated as far as the east is from the west. Lastly, the other animal that could be used was a ram. And remember how we talked about the significance of that. Remember Abraham and Isaac going up Mount Moriah, carrying the wood? Isaac's son, his only son, the son of promise. He had Ishmael, but this is the son of promise, the son that God had promised to him. And he tells, God tells him to sacrifice his only son. But God, you promised that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This doesn't make any sense to me, but God, you told me I'm going to do it. And they go up the mountain. Remember at one point, Isaac turns to his dad and says, Dad, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Imagine the heart of Abraham being asked that by his son. And we see Abraham's heart that he, he's, and, and Isaac's heart. Because at this point, Isaac was not a little kid. He was probably in his late teens or even early 20s. And Abraham was like 120 years old. There would have been no contest. You know, don't be raising that knife at me, Dad. I'll knock you out, right? I mean, he could have done that. But he didn't. Isaac, a picture of Christ, freely laid himself down, trusted his father. Abraham held up the knife, was about to kill him, and God stopped him and said, Now, Abraham, I know you will withhold nothing from me. And they turned, and what did they see caught in the thicket? A ram. And so we see here that the sacrifices all point to God's provision through his son to pay the price for our sin. Awesome. Look at verses 4 through 12. And he's going to talk about the other sacrifices as well. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering you shall prepare with a burnt offering of sacrifice for each lamb. For a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hen of oil. And as a drink offering, you shall offer one-third of a hint of wine as a sweet aroma to the Lord. And when you prepare a young bull or a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow, or as a peace offering to the Lord, then shall, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a half a hint of oil. You shall bring as a drink offering half a hint of wine as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord." Thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, for each lamb or young goat, according to the number that you prepare, so you shall do with everyone according to their number. So along with the animal itself, this is new here. Prior to this, it was the animal. Now he's adding a grain and a drink offering on top of the animal being sacrificed. Now we've talked about this again when we were in Leviticus. We talked about some of the significance of some of these things. First of all, the flower. We know that the flour had to be without what? Without leaven, right? Leaven is a picture of what? Sin. Jesus Christ is sinless. So the flour had to be sifted, in a sense beaten, had to be pure, and had to be without leaven. A picture of Jesus Christ. Along with the flour, they also had oil. Oil in the Bible is a representation of whom? The Holy Spirit. Okay? So you've got the, the flower that's a picture of Christ. You've got the, and, and what do they use, like we're going to see in a minute, what do they use to make with the flower? They made cakes or bread from it. 
Who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ yet again. And so the Holy Spirit, this hint of oil, and then lastly, what was the third thing? Wine. Wine is a representation of what? The blood of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that this fine flowers we're going to see in a minute, they would make bread from it or cakes from it. And here we see a picture of communion. The Last Supper, right? The bread and the wine and then the oil, a picture of the Holy Spirit. Again, every one of these sacrifices, as they're making it hundreds of years before Jesus came, all point to our Savior. Now, I love the Old Testament because it's Jesus on every page. You can't look at a chapter in the Old Testament and not see Jesus. You see Jesus in the genealogies when you look up the meanings of the names. All of it points to Him. And I just love that about, the, about God's Word. It's so awesome. Again, they were to bring this sacrifice. And it was interesting because they weren't, where were they going to get this flour and this oil and this wine from anyway? Weren't they wandering in the wilderness? He's saying when you go into the land of promise, now you're going to be able to have crops. And what I want you to do is from the crops, from the grain or from the, from the vineyard that you plant, I want you to give me of your first fruits. I want you to bring the animals, a representation of the, the shed blood. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. And I also want you to bring the first fruits of your labor and give that to me. But just to say, Lord, I know that you're the one that provides. We're to give God our first fruits, not our last fruits. Amen? We give God the best, not the rest. Not what's left. We give God first of our time, first of our finances, first of our gifts, first of everything we have. It all belongs to Him. How much of your stuff is God's? All of it. Not 10% of it or 15 or whatever. It's all His, and we need to be good stewards of it. And I know I don't talk about that here a lot. We don't even pass an offering here because I don't want anybody to ever think it's about money. But I want to encourage you with something. Giving is a get to and not a have to. Amen? Because when we give, it's just a way of saying, Lord, you're first in my life. And that's what, that's what he's instituting here in their heart. You know, it also says later that when Jesus was on the cross, that he was poured out as a drink offering. So yet again, this drink offering is also a picture of Jesus Christ. Every aspect of the sacrifice points to him. Verses 13 through 16. All who are native-born shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you, whoever is among you throughout your generations, and will present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly, and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord." One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. This wipes out the thoughts of many gods, many paths, many ways. You ever talk to somebody that says, well, Jesus is the God of the United States. Maybe it's Confucius over here, and maybe it's Muhammad over here, and maybe it's Buddha over here, and maybe it's... Right? And they got all these different gods. And maybe that's just God had different paths for different cultures. You know what it says right here? One way to heaven. Amen? It's the same sacrifice for everybody. If a stranger comes in, whether he be an Egyptian or a Moabite or an Amal, whoever he is, and he wants to join in with the children of Israel, then he must have the same sacrifice as the children of Israel. Not something separate, not a different way to heaven, not a different path. Every sacrifice was exactly the same. One law, one authority, one way, one truth, one sacrifice. You know what? God didn't make exceptions for people's culture, for their background, or for their ethnicity. Again, all had to follow the same law. What's the standard? It's God's Word. God's Word is the standard. God is faithful and He's just and He's righteous. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Is there any other way to heaven but besides Jesus Christ? What's the answer? Absolutely not. Amen? And what the point is being made very clear here. One sacrifice, one path, one way. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter where you grew up or what your... It doesn't matter. It's all about Jesus. And he's the only way that we can get in. You know, the politically correct world says there's different standards 
for different people. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And very clearly here, he's, he's again bringing them back to the law. He's saying, guys, I want you to understand the authority one more time. It's the sacrificial system that all points to me. And when strangers come in, they're, they're welcome to come to me too, but they come the same way that you do. They don't go and have an idol over here that they worship and then say that they're one of you. It doesn't work that way. We have Jesus Christ in common. Verse 17 through 21. It says there, And again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come to the land to which I bring you, then it will be that when you eat of the bread of the land, that you shall offer a heave offering to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering. As a heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you offer it up. Of the first of your ground meal, so you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. Now what is a heave offering? It doesn't mean the guy's sick. It doesn't mean he's heaving, okay? A heave offering was an offering where they literally presented it to God. They, it was also called a wave offering, okay? They would take and they would make the first fruits, and the very first thing they had, they would offer it to the Lord. And then they would give it to the priest, and it was the way that God provided for those who served in the tabernacle or in the temple later. So that was God's provision. So they took the very first of what they had before they ate anything themselves, before they put anything into the storehouse, the first thing they did was offer the first of what they had to God, giving Him the very first fruits. Again, more focused on the Lord and things eternal than focusing on ourselves. Desiring the Word of God more than our necessary food. Putting God first. Not saying, okay, I'm going to make sure I'm full and, you know, and i got enough stuff in the storehouse to last me ten years, and then, God, I'll give you some. Then, I'll help, then, then I can hook you up. But don't be touching my, you know, i got to have a certain amount in the bank. I, you know, I remember when I was uh, first in sales, and God blessed me with a great job. And, and you know what? I remember thinking, I always had a number of mine. If I had this much money in the bank, then I'd, I'd feel comfortable. Any other guy in the room ever thought that way besides me? Right? Especially, it's a guy thing. I mean, women too, but guys, we just got this, if I have that much money, then I'll, I'll feel secure. It's noise, isn't it? Rockefeller, they asked Rockefeller that. You know, how, many, how much money did you have to have to have peace? Was it 500,000, 1 million, 5 million, 10 million? You know what his answer was? A little bit more. Whatever you got, you got to have more to have peace. And the Lord wants us to be focused on Him first. And that's what the heave offering was all about. It was, Lord, I'm going to take the very first fruit of what I get. out of the, I, I toil in the ground for a year. The grain comes up. We pluck the grain. We bring it in. You know, my wife needs it and makes the cakes. And, and, and you know what? It smells good coming out of the oven. But Lord, before I touch it, before I taste it at all, I bring the first of what I have and I give it to you because you're the priority in my life. You come first. What's God trying to teach this, young, this next generation? Don't take your eyes off of me. Don't fall into the same trap of those who are wandering in the wilderness who stop trusting my word. Look to me first. As soon as we get our eyes off of him, we're going to have problems. Now we're going to move on to the sin offering. And we're going to see unintentional sins of the congregation and then unintentional sins of the individual. Again, we talked about this in Leviticus. We'll talk about what that means. Look at verse 22 and 23. It says, If you sin unintentionally, and do not observe all the commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses. From that day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations. So if you sin unintentionally according to what God has taught you. Now, we talked about this in Leviticus. I would say, and I'm just going to confess for me, 95% of my sin is intentional. How about yours? Do you like just slip into sin, or do you know you're going to sin before you sin and you do it anyway? Be honest. Then the Holy Spirit goes, don't do it. Anybody else feel that still? Now, if you're saved, you better be hearing that voice. Amen? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comforts you and He convicts you. Don't say that. It's not appropriate. <laughs> but it's so funny. People are going to laugh. You know what I mean? And don't say it. And, but, you know, don't say it. Don't. And then throw it out there and then, oh, Holy Spirit, head slap, right? <laughs> The conviction of the Holy Spirit. People think, that's why I'm bald back here. See, people, It's just the Holy Spirit's been whooping up on me. But here's the thing. The reality is that most of our sin is intentional. We don't slip into sin. We choose to sin. Amen? Isn't that true? But it says here, unintentional sin. So what's he talking about? 
Well, mainly he's talking about sins of omission, even more than sins of commission, where God had established that they were to do things a certain way, and if they didn't do them, even out of ignorance. Now, an example I thought of is, you know, I've been driving in the car with a buddy of mine, and we're driving along the road, and, and the speed limit changes, and because I'm talking, I don't notice it. And the speed limit goes from 55 down to 45, and I'm driving 55. And I'm driving along, and I have no idea that I'm speeding. Am I sinning? Yes. Romans 13 says to submit to the authority that God has placed over you. It's sin whether you know it or not. Amen? And I guess in that case, that's like the closest thing I could think of to an unintentional sin, right? It wasn't my intent. I wasn't being rebellious. I wasn't shaking my fist at God. I just wasn't paying attention like I should have, and it's unintentional. And he's saying that those are the, with those types of sins, there still had to be a sacrifice. It wasn't premeditated, but the word in Hebrew talks about any kind of a sin that is not done in a spirit of rebellion. It's a sin that's not done with defiance in your heart. But again, it's still sin nonetheless. Whether you know that it's sin or not, it's still sin. Because God said so. God's truth. God is the divining line. People say, well, I didn't know it was sin. It's still sin. Why is so many people in the world don't think they're... There are people in the world that don't think they're sinners. Did you know that? You know, if you don't see that you're a sinner, you'll never see your need for a Savior. That's the first thing you've got to get people to understand when you witness to them. They must see that they're sinners or they'll see no need for a Savior. But the reason we don't know we're sinners, the people that don't, is they don't know what God, the Bible says. And they don't understand the law of God. And so it says there, verse 24, Then it will be, if it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation, that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering, its drink offering, a according to its ordinance, and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So it says there, this is talking about the sins of the congregation. So if the congregation does something, in a sense, unknowingly, there still has to be a sacrifice. Because sin requires a sacrifice every single time. Because you didn't know does not excuse you. You still must bring a sacrifice. Sin is sin whether we know it or not, and Jesus Christ is the standard. We don't compare ourselves to other people. Why do people think they're not sinners? Because they compare themselves to Osama bin Laden. Well, I'm no Osama bin Laden. Oh, okay. I'm no Saddam Hussein, right? I mean, I'm no Mother Teresa, but if God grades on a curve, I'm probably closer to her than Osama, so I'm probably all right. And we think God grades on a curve, but here's the reality. God doesn't grade on the curve. God grades on the cross. At the cross, Amen. It's Jesus Christ is the standard. And when we compare ourselves to Him, we all fall short. Every single one of us. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And He's letting them know, guys, even if you sinned unintentionally, a sacrifice must still be made. It says there also a sin offering. And that's for atonement. The atoning work of the cross. Again, giving its life to restore the fellowship of another. You take that innocent animal and it must die to restore the fellowship between sinful man and and holy God. Verse 25 and 26. So the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and the stranger who dwells among them, because all the people did it unintentionally. But I love this. Who is the one that makes a sacrifice for the whole congregation? What does it say? The priest, right? He makes the sacrifice, and it applies to the whole congregation. Who's our great high priest? Jesus Christ. He paid the price, and because of his shed blood, it applies to all of us. This is a picture of the fact that salvation is offered universally. It's offered to every man, woman, and child on this planet, and we all either accept it or reject it. Now look at the individual response to it. Look at verse 27 through 29. And if a person sins unintentionally, no, that was talking about a congregation, and if the congregation sins and they miss God, then the, the priest goes and makes a sacrifice, and all the people are forgiven because it was done unintentional. Now if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, it shall be forgiven him. 
You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. Now, when I was in Russia, I used to go to Russia a lot. When I was in Russia, the first few years I went, I went into cities where nobody, in many cases, had ever heard of Jesus before, because it was against the law, right, prior to that. And they never heard of the Bible. And when you talked to them about sin, they didn't understand it. And I would try to explain to them sin, and then I would try to explain to them salvation. And the analogy I would always use, I would take some kind of a token gift I would have, and I would say, God loves every one of you. And he suffered and died on the cross so you might have eternal life. And he offers that gift universally. But it must be accepted individually. God can offer it, and he does offer it to all of mankind, but we must reach out and accept that free will gift. If I hold out my keys and I offer them to justice and say, this car is yours, bro. I give it to you. Here, come and take it. If he doesn't come and take it, it's still not his. And that's how salvation is. God offers it to all of us, but we must be the ones that respond in faith and say, Lord, I want that gift of salvation. Lord, I accept it. I believe what you say. I trust in you. I give my life to you. So it's offered universally, but must be accepted individually. And here's the reality. Nobody else can take the gift for you. Alicia can't come up and take the gift for her husband. You can't, your parents can't take it for you. But we would like to. Wouldn't you love to take the gift for your kids? Wouldn't you love to say, Lord, yeah, save my, yeah, here, I'll take it, I'll, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm interceding for him. And we should intercede and pray for him, but God has no grandchildren. Amen? We must come on our own. My prayer daily is, Lord, I want, don't let it be my faith, let it be their faith. Let it be theirs individually. And so we see here this picture that when a person sins, he must bring the offering. When he brings the offering, he's admitting what? He's what? He's guilty. He's a sinner. When he shows up and says, here's my sacrifice, he's saying, there's a need for sacrifice for me. I've blown it. I need this sacrifice to be paid. I need the blood to be shed so that I can be restored. I need this to happen. And it's an admission of guilt. It's an admission of that need that's there. And so it was offered universally. We see the high priest paying the sins for the whole congregation. But when it happens in the heart of an individual, they must accept it on a one-to-one basis before Almighty God. It must be accepted individually. It's interesting that this sin offering, again, they lay the hands on the head, identifying themselves. And when the priest would take the blood. You know what he did with it? He would take it and sprinkle it on all four horns. There were horns on the bronze altar. And what they would do is they would tie the animal down to these horns. And when they would take the blood of the animal, they would then sprinkle it on all four of the horns. And then they would take the rest of the blood and they would pour it out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. What's that a picture of? It's the cross yet again. The four points, again, on the cross, Jesus bled both of his hands from his feet, the crown of thorns upon his head, right? And it's a picture of the cross. And what happened? His blood was poured out at the base of the, of the altar, in a sense, of the cross. Again, all of it very clearly pointing to Jesus Christ. It's also interesting that with the sin offering, they would take the carcass after they made the sacrifice and they would carry it outside of the city gates, the north side, outside of the city gates, And there they would burn it. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city gates. Those of you who are getting ready to go to Israel with us in about three, four weeks, whatever it is. We're going to be at the very spot where Jesus was crucified at Calvary. And it's right outside the gate of Jerusalem. Just as we see these sacrifices being made hundreds of years before Jesus came. Very clearly pointing to him. And look at verse 29 again. What does it say? One law for him. For the native born the children of Israel, and the stranger. There's no excuses for sin. You can't blame it on your heritage. You can't blame it on your upbringing. Again, you can't say it's not my fault. Yes, it is. It's your fault. You're a sinner in need of a Savior, just like you and me. Now we're going to move on and look at righteous judgment against rebellion. But the person, verse 30, who does anything presumptuously, whether he's native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Oh, wait a minute. The word there, presumptuously, what does that mean? So if I sin on purpose, I'm cut off? Is that what it means? Because if it does, I'm in big trouble. How about you? 
Didn't I just say before, and most of you agreed with me, and the ones who didn't were lying, right? But the reality is most of our sin is done intentionally. We choose to sin. And sadly, we choose to sin every day. The word here for presumptuous is a word that in the original language in Hebrew literally means to sin with a high hand, to be high-handed. Again, in a sense of someone shaking their fist at God and saying, I don't care what you say, and I don't care what you're going to do. I'm doing this anyway, and it doesn't matter to me. You, you don't mean anything to me, God. I shake my fist at you, and I refuse to repent, and I refuse to, to accept what you've done. I'm going to do it, and I don't care. Bring it on. I dare you to do something to me. Have you ever met people like that? I've had people say it right in front of me, if God's real, then strike me with lightning right now. I usually just kind of do one of these, you know. God may choose to, but he may not. And if he doesn't, it's only his grace that he doesn't do it. But you know what it is? There's no fear of God. People that are shaking their fists at God, they don't really believe there is a God, and they have no fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And you know what? If there's no fear of God, then you're not going to live a life of awe and reverence toward him. And again, the result was going to be the same. God had called them and said, you know what, you've got to, if, if you look at me and you shake your fist at me, then you're going to be, what does it say? Cut off from among his people. Now what does that mean to be cut off? If someone shakes their fist at God, there's no sacrifice for them. That's what it says. And to be cut off, let me just tell you what it means. Dead. That's what it means. Put to death. Look what it says in the next verse. Because he has despised, what? despised what? The what? The word of the Lord. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off and his guilt shall be upon him. God's severe and righteous judgment against those who shake their fists at God and say, God, I don't need you. I don't believe in you. I don't care what you think. I don't believe you created me. I'm going to do what I want. I'm my own God. I'm going to go my own way. And eventually God gives them what they want. The ultimate judgment is when God just gives people what they ask for. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be... And finally God says, okay. All right. But with that comes the consequences of our sin. Now watch this. And I want you to see this because this is going to appear pretty harsh the first time you read it. You're going to see like, man, God's pretty rough. But I want you to see that this is a high, an example of a high-handed sin. Look at verse 32 to 36. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Now, that seems pretty innocent, right? He's gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. He's not building a house. He's gathering sticks. Right? Seems pretty mild. Look what it says. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the, generation, all the congregation and put him under guard, because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, This man shall surely be put to death. Wait a minute. The guy was picking up sticks, and he's going to die? And we can look at that initially and say, Man, God's pretty harsh. That doesn't seem fair. Look at the context. He's talking about high-handed sin. What had God told them when he started raining manna out of the sky? What did he tell them? Do no work on the Sabbath. What else did he tell them? Don't make a fire, right? Who's providing for them? God is. What is this man doing? He's saying, I'm gonna, I, I have to go beyond what God wants to give me. I've got to do it myself. He was gathering sticks to make a fire, to cook for himself, to provide for himself, to no longer trust in God anymore, but to trust in his own ability. You know, that's exactly what happens in the cults today. They violate God's law, they don't trust God's word, and they start doing their own thing and trying to add to what God has said. You know what? We don't need any more books than this one. Amen? Anybody starts trying to hand you a magazine and say it's as inspired as the Bible, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Amen? Anybody starts telling you they got four or five other books on top of this one, not true. And that's what the cults do. They add to what God has already done. God's not sufficient. God's not enough. I've got to do it myself. I've got to go out and work and gather them up. And that's what, what's happening here. And God is very clear that we need to trust in Him alone. And the, the sad part is it says He despised what? The Word of God. They despised the Word of God. They didn't heed what God's Word said. 
And that's what the world does today. It despises God's Word. It thinks it knows better. Look at 35 and 36. And the Lord said to Moses, This man shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. How many guys do you think were picking up sticks the following Sabbath? I'm thinking nobody. Right? You bring a guy outside the gate and they throw rocks at him until he's dead. What did he do? He's picking up sticks, man. I mean, there could be a pile of sticks in front of your door and you'd be jumping, am I touching no sticks? Right? What happens is we learn through the consequences of our sin and through the consequences of sin of others to walk in holiness, to realize that sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad, right? It's going to harm us because God loves us. He knows what's best for us. What happens is if he allows the guy to start picking up his own sticks and start creating his own way, he's going to be in rebellion and not trust God's word anymore. And when he's supposed to enter into the land of promise, he's not going to go. Because he's going to heed the counsel of, the men, of people and he's not going to listen to what God has said. It's a dangerous thing as a Christian to say, I'll go ahead and sin because afterward I can ask God to forgive me. How many have ever done that before? And if your hand's not up, you're lying. You've never, uh, I, yeah, I know this is wrong, but God will forgive me. I, the, the enemy loves to whisper that in your ear. Go ahead. He said I'll forgive you. Just go ahead. It's okay. Right? And that's Satan. And you know what? We, and, and that's a dangerous thing. Because sin, while it can be and will be forgiven, if we ask for forgiveness, it still has consequences. Amen? And those consequences will remain even after God forgives us. Rebellion has heavy consequences. Again, salvation is a free gift, but we should never think of it as being cheap. We're almost done. Look at 36. So the Lord commanded Moses and all the congregation, brought him outside the camp, and stoned him with stones, and he died. And a warning to God's people. Don't Try to do things on your own. Keep your eyes on me. Verse 37. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, and now he's going to remind them of the commandments and to keep those ever before their face. Speak to the children of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garment throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you, that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart or your own eyes are inclined. So why did he make the tassel? So they would remember what? The commandments of God or the word of God. Every day when they got dressed, they'd be putting their clothes on and they would see those tassels and it would be a reminder to them of God's law, that they were chosen by God, that he had given them promises, that they were to trust in him and in his word and in his authority in their lives. And we need that constant reminder so that we don't get our eyes off of God. And he wanted to, you know what, I want you to keep your eyes on me and remember my word. You know, a busy life with its share of demands and distractions is something that can get our eyes off of the Lord really quick. Isn't that true? You get so busy, you look up, you know, how many of you know what I'm talking about? There have been times in your walk with God, you're so close to Him, you can't even stand it. You know what I'm talking about? You're just like, Man, my relationship with the Lord is so close. Lord, I'm loving you. Oh, this is great. And then you look up one day and you're not as close to you as you used to be, right? And what happened? Who moved? We did, amen? It's because we got our eyes off of Him. We stopped meditating on His Word. We got distracted by the world. And He says, I want you to wear these tassels. And that blue is a representation of the law. It's also a picture of heaven. And in closing, look at the last couple of verses here. It says in verse 40, that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. What was he wanting to remind them of? That he's God and he's faithful and he's in control. To remember his word, to remember his law and to trust in him and not make the mistake that those guys had made when they got to the land of promise and said, go spy out the land. Don't become faithless. As Christians, we don't wear tassels on our clothes. But you know what we have? We have something a lot better than a tassel. What do we have today as Christians? The Holy Spirit. Doesn't He remind us 24-7 who we belong to? Doesn't He remind us of God's law when we sin? He convicts us, right? He comforts us during times of difficulty. He walks with us and talks with us. And I think the other thing too is that blue cord is a reminder of heaven. And you want to have joy in this life? Have an eternal perspective. Amen? People that don't have joy are not focused on eternity. They're focused on the temporal. When we focus on God, we will have joy. So lastly in review, 
May we submit to God's Word and not test it. May we not make the mistake to say, let me push God's Word as far as I can. Let me test God's Word. Let's put it up for a vote. God says it, that settles it. Amen? We don't have to vote on it. We don't have to debate it. If God says it, that's good enough. May sin be followed quickly by repentance. I believe the sign of spiritual maturity is the distance between when we sin and how quickly we repent. As we mature in our faith, we go from days to hours to minutes to seconds. Amen? When we sin, maturity, spiritual maturity is followed quickly by repentance. May we never forget the heavy price that was paid for us. I tell you, I want you to go see this movie because I believe it will ingrain even deeper in you the heavy price that was paid for you. How you determine the value of something? What somebody's willing to pay for it. Remember that when you're watching this movie, that that's what was paid for you. Remember how valuable you are to God. He loves you enough that He would have done that just for you. And may we have a heavenly perspective and joy in our everyday walk. May we not make the mistake of of the children of Israel to stop trusting God's Word, to try to take the authority for ourselves and fall into the trap. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You and I praise You. And I thank You for the example in Your Word that, that, Father, You do love Your people. And You desire to draw them back into fellowship with You when they fall into rebellion. Lord, I pray for each of us, Lord, that when we do rebel against You, and when we, we turn away from You, and we try to do things our own way, I thank You, Lord, that we can take a million steps away from God, but it truly is only one step back. Father, I pray if there's anybody here tonight that's been struggling in their walk, I pray they would know that You're right there with open arms willing to receive them back into a place of close fellowship with you, that you love them so very much. Help us, Father God, to, to not take the authority away from you. Help us, God, not to get our eyes off of your word. Help us, God, not to try to take the throne of our own lives. Father, may we be people that are submitted to you, focused on you, in love with you, giving you our first fruits of everything that we have. Father, we love you and we praise you. Pray for each person who's here just would bless them, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Let's close the worship song.